Moses tells Pharaoh, let my people go. The Bible just calls him Pharaoh, but does not tell us which Pharaoh of Egypt it was. Fortunately, using the Bible as a guide and looking at Egyptian history, it was most likely a guy named Amenhotep II. Now let's take a look. In Egypt, there were three kingdoms, old, middle, and new, and between each kingdom, we call them intermediate periods. When Joseph came to Egypt, it was likely the Hyksos in this intermediate period, and when there was a new Pharaoh who rose who did not know Joseph, that would be the new kingdom and the 18th dynasty. Now let's start with Thutmose III. He ruled for a long time, 54 years, to have been ruling Egypt when Moses left and still ruling right before Moses came back. His son, Amenhotep, succeeded him, who is likely the pharaoh of the Exodus. Unlike other 18th dynasty kings, he chose to rule from Goshen, which put him close to the Israelites, making him accessible to Moses and Aaron. Now, let's look at the 10th plague. All firstborn Egyptians died, so if Amenhotep succeeded his father, wouldn't he die too? Well, no, because Amenhotep was not the firstborn. His older brother was, so he survived. He did, however, lose his firstborn, and to succeed him was Thutmose IV, who of course was not the firstborn. Another fun fact about his successor, Thutmose IV, was that he was the first to introduce monotheism in Egypt, probably just because he witnessed the power of Yahweh. So there you go, a little bit about Amenhotep II, and that's enough today for our historical minute. I appreciate Mike for many reasons, but one of them is that he can say the Egyptian names correctly. I love that. Let me open with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for the love that you have for us in this life. We love that the way that you pursue us with your word and with your truth and with your spirit. Father, continue to allow ourselves, soften our hearts, Lord, that we might open more and more and more of our lives up to you, that we may hear your words anew, that we may be transformed by their truths, by their message, by their love, by their forgiveness that we might know you better, and as a result of knowing you better, experience so much of the stuff that you talk about, the good stuff that you talk about in life, experiencing peace and joy, freedom from our past, hope, all the things that we yearn for in this life, Lord, give us that heart to receive your word anew, and we pray that tonight in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, so we're in the middle of the Exodus. We're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 20. I think I got a few verses into this fourth plague. Um, just kind of picking up from where we are. We're in this epic, titanic battle of wills between the most powerful man on the earth, Amenhotep. I think I did that one good today. And God, the most powerful being in the universe. And they're having this, this sort of negotiation. It's not really a negotiation. It's God telling the most powerful man on earth, this is what I need you to do. And it's the most powerful man on earth resisting that. Can anybody relate to that at all? Okay, so, so that's what's happening here. And because Pharaoh is so powerful, because he views himself as a semi-god, right, or a demigod, because he has the weight of Egypt on his shoulders, because his father had been so successful, because he's been successful in his own right, because this is the kind of quintessential time of power in Egypt, there's a lot of stuff going on as God tells Pharaoh what's going to happen. He's dealing with Pharaoh's pride just in who he is right? I mean, go to, a, maybe not our president, that's not a good example because they get just hard and feathered by anybody, no matter who the president is, right? Maybe uh, Putin, right? He feels pretty secure, I think, you know, and he probably feels a lot about himself and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but he's the most powerful being in the earth. Nobody tells him what to do. And Moses and his God is coming to him and telling him, 
This is what needs to happen. And it's not just we need to go out and have a picnic. I want to take two million people out into the desert three days to go worship our God because he told us to. And he's like, I don't care who told you to. You're not doing anything. And so God tries to slowly show him just how powerful and amazing he is. And the first three plagues unfold. Pharaoh is largely unimpressed. His, his magicians can do a lot of the same things that God can. It, albeit God does them a little bit better, a little bit more grandiose. And, and finally, in the third plague, the magicians couldn't equal God's power. Pharaoh, even though witnessing the third plague of the gnats, right, the fleas, still unimpressed, at least unimpressed enough to let the people go. So he ushers this next set of three plagues where God will sort of up the ante in many ways. There's a couple marks with these second set of three plagues. The first mark is that the magicians no longer seem to appear before Pharaoh in an effort to mimic the power of God. Okay, they're just, and that's a pretty big thing because the magicians had a, a, a pretty prominent spot on the council of Pharaoh. These guys were heard, they were venerated. I mean, people had collected baseball cards, except, you know, magician cards of who these guys were, right? They were looked up to, they were revered. They, they actually kept a record of who the magicians were for each of the pharaohs. These were people that were respected in the land. Pharaoh respected them, and, and now they had become of no consequence in this discussion and this negotiation with God. Another mark of the second set of three um, plagues was that God begins to distinguish between the Israelites and the Egyptians. It just so has to leave no doubt that it's God who's pulling the strings. To leave no doubt this is not some magician's ability, but it is God himself drawing a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. So we kind of begin that process as we look at this today. We're going to pick up in verse 20 with the flies, with the fourth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send flies, a swarm of flies on you and your servants and on your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Remember last week I said, imagine walking on the ground going crunch, crunch, crunch. I mean, it's just gross and they're everywhere. You can't get rid of them. How many of you guys like the mugginess going on in Phoenix right now? How many of you guys like the extra insects that are in the air when there's mugginess in, in the air in Phoenix right now? No, nobody likes it. It's gross. It feels Yiki, imagine everywhere you are, there's flies. The first three plagues, including that of the gnats, were mainly an irritant. I mean, they just were an irritant. Everywhere they would go, there was these frogs, or these, there were these gnats, or the, or the Nile River was blooded. It was causing all sorts of inconvenience. Nothing was permanent to their economy. Nothing was permanent to the people. It was an inconvenience. With the flies, though, the Lord begins to up the ante a little bit. These wouldn't just be merely an inconvenience, but they would also destroy the vegetation of the land. It'd also be, many countries think, horse flies. And so they would leave welts or, or, or swelling as a result of the bites. And so they were painful. So God was just up in the ante a little bit saying, okay, an inconvenience wasn't enough to convince you? How about a little pain? How about a little more inconvenience? How about some of your land getting ruined, some of your crops getting ruined because of all the flies? But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where all the Israelites were, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And it's kind of a funny thing or a crazy thing, right? God is sending all these flies upon the land. But can just imagine the border of Goshen? 
flies everywhere, no flies. Flies everywhere, no flies. It is contrary to nature. It is contrary to anything normal that God could do that. But God is God who defies all of the normalcy of our earth and he can do anything he wants. And so he sets a distinction between the land of Goshen, where the Israelites are, and all of Egypt. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. And the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. I mean, it said this once before, right? It's like, oh, I, was, I need to pacify these guys so you get their God to kind of take the thing away. But he says it, Go sacrifice to God within your land. But Moses says, It would be night, not right to do so, for the offerings we will sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. It's an interesting thing, this phrase that he uses, Go sacrifice to God, your God within the land. Is that what God told Moses needed to happen? But it was an olive branch, wasn't it? Hey, go do your thing in the land. And lots of times in our world today, as a church, as Christians, we might take that olive branch instead of stay true to God's word, right? We'll say this most of the way there, but it's not all the way there. And God draws a distinction always between following his word 100% in truth, right? And half-truths. Right now, going on in, in the country of China, there's kind of a, a de-religious, religifying or whatever, I'm just making up words, but they're trying to reduce religion in the land or its effect in the land. And so they're sending Muslims to boot camps, trying to get them to, to give up some of their Sharia law stuff and kind of renormalize them into society. They're, they're, they're pressuring cr uh, churches all over the place to, to stop saying Jesus and God is the most important thing and, and, and taking down the cross and taking down just different things that would draw people's attention toward God being a God who can help and save and forgive and all that stuff and replacing it more and more with President Z's poster, right? The China, the institution is the thing that you need to look to for help and for comfort and all those different things. They're the only ones that can help you. And so they're, they're doing this all across China right now. And that in many ways is saying, it, the government of China would be like, you can practice religion this far. You can share truth this far. But when it comes to all the truth that God is supreme, when it comes to all the truth that Jesus is your savior and not the government, when it comes to all the truth, we can't let you do it. If the mainline church in China, an effort to kind of go along to get along, saying whatever you say. I mean, they're going in protest. They're frustrated about it. But they're going along and saying, okay, lest they be shut down completely, lest they be put in prison, lest a whole bunch of bad things happen. Just an interesting thing when God says, I want you to do it this way, we have all this emotion and all the rationalizations to say, well, what if we just go part of the way? And that's what actually Pharaoh was offering here. Go worship in the land. That's what you were wanting to do. Go sacrifice to God in the land. Have your big party, your picnic in the, in the land. I mean, we'll make some room for it. Do it in Goshen. I mean, do it whatever. It's just, I mean, stop. There's all this talk about leaving. But Moses understanding that it was to be God's way or no way. Understanding this wasn't really a negotiation, but it was God telling Pharaoh what was going to happen, responds rightly. 
And Moses says, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. Now Moses' defense was a real one. Already there was a dim view of the Israelites, right? They were slaves. Uh, They were overpopulating. They were everywhere. Egyptians in general were sick of them. Certainly the government didn't have any problem being hard on them or having some of them die because it actually reduced their population a little bit. So they're already looked at as sort of subhuman. And now they're talking about sacrificing. Remember from Genesis, from Joseph's time, they already had a dim view of shepherds. That was their primary occupation outside of their work that they had to do as slaves. But they were going to to sacrifice things like cattle. And cattle were kind of, not not quite like the Hindus, but but they were venerated as a form of a god. And so they were protected in Egypt. And it was not something that you would just go sacrifice one of their animals. And so if you went and started sacrificing cattle and sheep before the Lord, it would have been an abomination in the Egyptians' eyes to see some of their, their gods being sacrificed by these Israelites. And certainly there would have been stoning and certainly they would have retaliated and in, 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 in signs of stoning or whatever it might have been, just showing their displeasure. It's almost like, think PETA, but like a bajillion times more than that, right? It's not just that they loved animals. This was something they worshipped. And so it was an abomination in every way and there would have been recompense. There would have been something that the Egyptians would have done to stop it. So we say we had to go three days in. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Moses lets that one go, but he says, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let the Pharaoh not cheat again by not letting the people go to the sacrifice to their Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from the people. Not one remained But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. I want you to think about being Moses for a second. You know this is going to be a long, I keep calling it a negotiation, but you know this is going to take a while for Pharaoh finally to let the people go. God's told you. You you know this is not the end game. He's already told you the end game. Somebody's going to die, right? Firstborn are going to die. So you know every time Pharaoh says, I'm going to let you go, Moses is like, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. I wish it would. It'd spare you guys a lot of pain, but it's just not going to happen. And so Moses just kind of goes out and praises the Lord and says, Okay, Lord, I guess another round in the book. Let's see what happens now. But what's almost inexplicable is Pharaoh. I mean, it's not inexplicable. Just think about the pride that this guy has. I mean, he views himself as a demagogue. I, I, you know, he views himself as someone who's the most powerful man in the world. How dare these people, how dare their God tell him to do anything? But after the first three plagues, plagues he recognizes that this God of Moses is not somebody to be trifled with. After this one, he's like, oh man, I might actually have to negotiate with this God. I might actually have to do something with this God. And then it's not just his own pride. He represents all of the religion Okay, of Egypt, kind of the linchpin. And what he's saying by caving to Israel's God, their slave's God, is that the slave's God is greater than their God. 
understand, they viewed not only themselves as the most powerful country in the world, which they were, but their gods were the most powerful gods in the world because they had given them, right, this incredible power. So they also had the pride representing the whole of, of, of the G- Egypt's um, religious system, which they were very proud in, right, very proud of. So you had that pride, those two prides going on. And then you also had just the simple reality that they had become a powerful force, had done incredible feats, not only in militarily, but architecturally. They're still renowned for some of the things that they did back in the 18th century or 18th dynasty. They were going to lose their whole slave force, the thing which made the country great and powerful and able to work like they could and do the things that they could. You can't just lose that, not just because there's some flies in the air. You can't just let them go. And they say they only go on to go worship their God, but man, three days in the wilderness with all their stuff, that's too much temptation. That's, I don't know, with this God that's doing all this stuff, they're going to escape. Certainly he would have heard the chatter from the people of Israel, from some of his spies, that that was their intention anyway, so there's no way he was letting them go. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Hey, flies are gone. You know, a few plants got killed, right? I mean, a few sores are healing up. But, you know, overall, we're still doing all right. No reason to let him go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon the livestock that are in the field, the horses and the donkeys and the camels and the herds and the flocks. But the Lord again will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. Not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Now we think that's a horrible thing. A plague came in, and it seems like overnight killed all the livestock of the land. But what we don't understand, perhaps, is the impact that had on the economy. These beasts of burden would have been used in all the heavy labor that went on, both in farming and in building. All the things that they had to carry or transport, they would have been down. This would have crippled their economy for a period of time until they could purchase enough other beasts of burden from the countries around to to replace them. This would have been something that was just an annoyance and a difficulty and a hardship and very, very, very expensive. And for the common person, the common Egyptian... It could have killed their livelihood, right? And it wasn't just the livestock that were getting beat by this. This, this pla- Well, yeah, in this one it is. Okay, never mind. But it was the, so, so for the common Egyptian, they would have been crippled by this. Their ability to farm, their ability to transport crops downtown to sell the stuff. Um, it would have just been a very difficult thing for the average Egyptian. And for the, the Israelites who were doing all this hard construction work, it would have stopped progress almost immediately for what were they to do to transfer these huge rocks. But even with that, now with the crippling blow to the economy, Pharaoh says, well, we can't bring the livestock back. Still no reason to let the people go. 
And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust all over the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out and sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. If you remember or have read through the book of Job, think the sores, the boils that were on him that you had to scrape off with a rock, just very painful, very horrible. So they took soot from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and on beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. And the boils became, came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Again, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. I want you to think about what's happening, too, with the people of Israel at this, or Egypt at the, this time. They're very proud of their gods. And when these bad things started happening, what do you think was the first thing they began to do? worship their gods in effort for their gods to take the stuff away. And so they would worship the way they normally worshiped and they would do all these things, these rituals that were supposed to get the gods' attention so that they would defend the, them, right, against Israel's God. But they kept doing it and nothing happened. And so they got, what is your tendency to do when something doesn't work? You start doing things more zealously and more zealously. And they began sacrificing the Lord. One of the commentators I read kind of views this kiln that he took. And I don't know how you would get that for sure on this. But the kiln that he took some of the soot from was one of the kilns that they had sacrificed a person on in an effort to get their God's attention. Now, I think that's a stretch, but the reality is it could be. But they were crying out to their gods night and day for them to save, for them to rescue their people. But they were impotent against God Almighty. They proved ineffective to help them in any possible way. And each of these plagues was directed against a whole set of their gods, rendering more and more of the religious caste system, the religious God system, right, that they had impotent before God. Nothing was saving them. Nothing was working. And while they maybe understood the wisdom of Pharaoh at this point, not to let the whole workforce go, they were, their lives were miserable. They were constantly under attack from all this different stuff. Now their crops were damaged. Now their beasts were dead. I tell you, it doesn't take very much adversity for people to turn on their leaders, even if what their leaders are doing seems wise. Look at the Israelites, how quickly they turned on Moses the second their lives got a little bit more difficult. And so... As we go through this, you'll see the people's, the hearts, the Egyptians' hearts turn more and more to the Israelites' plea because they realized that Israel's God was more powerful. They realized until they let Israel go, bad things were going to keep happening over and over and over. And Pharaoh seemed to be tone deaf to what was happening to the country. If you're an average farmer and all your beasts are dead, you're like, you're hoping you have enough money to go get replacements at this point. What is Pharaoh doing? He's killing me and my family. We're going through famine kind of existence here because of what he's done. I'm watching crops die in the field. He's killing my business. But still, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Magicians were impotent to help as well. He did not listen as the Lord had spoken. Oh, good. Now, if you have questions, I can answer them. Oh, we have one. I realize he did not want to admit the slave's God was more powerful, but how would Pharaoh explain the differentiation between Egypt and Israel to the Egyptians? 
Well, it's interesting. They had a very synchronistic um, or fluid God system, right? They could kind of come up with new qualities about these gods over here, and they could worship these other gods over here. Think uh, the Catholic saint system, right? If I need to do good at a job, I go worship this saint, and if I need, I don't know, my crops to grow, I go worship this saint. I mean, each one has a kind of a specialty that you go worship or you go pray to or whatever, right? Not worship, but pray to. Think that in terms of gods, where you'd go worship these gods to get different results on different things. It would have been very easy for them to add a new god into their caste system. Obviously, a powerful god, one to be reckoned with. And so, it wouldn't have been hard to explain Israel's god, other than the fact that for 400 years, they had treated them like dirt, and this god didn't do anything about it. But now he's upset, and we better listen to him. And it wouldn't have taken much soul-searching to see how poorly they had treated this group of people. Think uh, African-Americans in our country, right? Imagine they had a God that was, you know, raining plagues down on America because of stuff that we had done way back in the day. It wouldn't do, take very much soul-searching to realize, hey, maybe we didn't treat them right, okay? And so, so the Egyptians, probably more and more a growing percentage of them, started having a heart for Israel And just get out of here. I mean, stop these attacks on our country. Stop this attack on my livelihood. Stop this attack. And then a growing frustration with Pharaoh, who is again a demigod, somebody that's, you know, revered a lot. You couldn't say this stuff against him that you could against the president, right? Not publicly, or you would be, you know, in jail or killed or something like that. So so they they were struggling. And yet every king in the world has had uh, popularity polls probably, right? And, and even back then, his popularity was waning. This incredibly powerful king in an incredibly powerful country who had never really faced much adversity, all of a sudden, it had come upon them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues to you, on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and the word, and, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so God, after these next, or these three sets of plagues that we just talked about, he kind of upped the ante, upped the pain, up the difficulty, up the hit on their economy. In these next set of three, he's going to devastate the economy. And in the tenth plague, he's going to devastate the people. Well, they probably devastated all along. Then God goes on through Moses to explain to Pharaoh exactly what's happening in case anything was lost on him. Look, I'm doing this to show you and your people in all the world just how powerful I am. And word of this, though it doesn't make it to Egyptian annals, right? All this spread like wildfire everywhere in the world at their time, right? Everywhere knew that they were getting their butts kicked, right, by the God of Israel. Everybody knew and now feared the God of Israel, lest what happened to Egypt would happen to them. When they go through the, the wilderness, when they go into the promised land, there were, that was several hundred years later, there was still a fear of the God of Israel. His reputation was being built to a place where people did not treat the God of Israel lightly, and thus they didn't treat the people of Israel lightly. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. 
you know, I used yesterday about, or last week about maybe going to your house and, and asking me, and me asking for your car and what it would take. But imagine Christians in our country kind of rounded up and used as a slave force. And God comes to our rescue and says to the president, let my people go. Do you think the president would let us go for a bunch of flies in the air? I mean, what would it take the president of the United States and the people of the United States to give up their slave force of Christians all across the country? It would take a powerful reckoning, wouldn't it? I mean, think of the pride in this country. Think about the free labor that we would view that as. Think about what it would take for us to let anybody go if we didn't want to. And we don't even have a pharaoh. We just have a democracy, right? So he goes on and says, Now therefore send to get livestock and all that you have in the field into a safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So you've just watched six plagues fall upon your land. The God of Israel says, I'm going to send hail like you've never seen. And it's going to rain down on everything. It's going to destroy your crops. Thus, another segment of your economy that you were hoping would bounce back. It's going to destroy any new beast that you got in, in the land of Egypt. It's going to destroy your economy for this short term. So my advice is, he would say, bring them inside. Bring them inside. He's even giving them a warning. And the people amongst Pharaoh's officials who believed him took their guys inside, took their servants inside, took the beasts or the, the, the livestock they had inside all to protect them because they feared what would happen. But inexplicably, there were still some of Pharaoh's officials that said, eh. either they didn't think much of their possessions or they just didn't believe that God could do anything of the sort. Now, for perspective, it rains about two inches a year in Egypt. In some parts of, of uh, lower or southern Egypt, it rains zero sometimes, some years. Uh, so the fact that people would say, well, this is just kind of a normal happening coming into town is not true at all. This was going to be a storm of storms like nobody had ever seen. And so he warns them in advance. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in the, all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down on the earth. So lightning bolts hitting the ground, lightning fields on fire, hail coming down pounding the beasts, pounding the servants, pounding anything that was living, pounding the, the crops that they had that were about to, be, um, about to be reaped. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, uh, very heavy hail, such has never been seen in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Now, I kind of get that with the storms. Sometimes it's raining here and I drive home and it's not raining there yet, right? But it's kind of a freak storm to come through and Again, hailing and raining here, nothing here. The God made a distinction yet again. See, after the third plague, apparently the people's hearts of Israel had turned back toward him, right? I think one of the things that we forget in these punishments or these, these plagues is 
that we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God, and thus, as a result, all deserve his punishment. Do we get that? It's only because of Jesus that we receive anything good, his forgiveness, uh, heaven, anything. And the people of Israel going into this had been kind of a, a rotten bunch or a pretty fickle bunch at the very minimum, right? Moses said what his job was, said what was the plan, right? They just had to trust in the plan, and they turned on him the second things got hard. And so God allowed them to be punished at first along with the Egyptians, but then people's hearts turned back to the Lord. Hey, our God's coming through. Hey, our God's doing some cool stuff. Hey, go God, go God. You know, I mean, they're getting excited. And so he spares them the rest of this. This one was a good to be spared. But again, the hail came down, the, the lightning came down. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail, where am I? I said, I don't want to skip ahead. Um, then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned and the Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. So I want you to think through what's happening here. This thunder and hail have come down, or the hail especially, and it's destroyed two of their huge crops, their barley and their flax. Their flax was used for, I guess, making clothes and stuff like that. And they detested wearing full wool, so this was kind of a big deal, I guess. But their barley was a huge crop, and they were looking for it to kind of sustain the people, both commercially and, you know, for them to eat. Because so much had been devastated, so much had been killed it was about January or February when this stuff is about ready to be reaped and, and taken in and, and sold. And before it could happen, the Lord rained down this stuff and destroyed another part of their economy. Destroyed whatever beasts they had or whatever livestock they had left that hadn't been taken in. Their country was in almost ruined. Certainly, they would be experiencing some very real famine stuff. They still had a couple crops to look forward to that could save them, Okay. But they were looking for, it was looking pretty bleak. Their economy had just been dealt, dealt several brutal blows. The people's livelihoods were destroyed. Pharaoh, Pharaoh still stuck to his guns. Upon seeing all this, though, Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. Interesting word there. It means that he acknowledged that he was in the wrong. He continues, the Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. I, I love that confession. If it were true confession, it would be an awesome confession. It's recognizing the thing I did yesterday was evil and wrong. And I, he didn't say I'm sorry, I guess that's a key part. But he's saying, I was wrong, you were right. Praise be to God for that awareness, right? It only takes seven plagues to get it, but he finally got his attention. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. It's interesting how life can bring you to your knees, isn't it? I've watched a lot of people's lives destroyed, and they go to God, and they say, God, help me, and then God does help them. And all of that fervency in the midst of the, the pressure or the, or the difficulty or the hardship seems to vanish as soon as things get better. <laughs> I was talking to a lady, she says, every time my son's life is good, he forgets about God. Every time my, life, my son's life gets difficult, he goes back to church. Do you think that's somewhat common in a lot of people? Things are going well, there's no reason to get God involved. I mean, things that keeps things going. But the second things get hard, we run back to him. Pharaoh was faced with a power that he knew that was greater than him. He recognized as long as God was giving the punishments that he needed to change. So he offers, he offers some things in the midst of that, saying, please make it stop. And says, I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. 
So he says, plead for the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that, there is, that, that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. The flax and barley were struck down, but for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the summer in the emmer, I'm sorry, were not struck down, for they were, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out from the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands over the earth, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But again, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants, so he wasn't alone. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Now, how could Moses make that claim to Pharaoh before he goes? Because he knew this wasn't the final plague. So he kind of said, hey, look, I still know that you're clinging to something here, that somehow you still think you're more powerful. They had a huge army, but who were they going to fight, right? God? I mean, how do you fight God? There's nothing they could do. They were powerless against him. And yet they still clung to their pride. They still clung to this idea that we can't just give in. So again, it says the Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So he gives them another plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in your hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And so it wasn't just for the world that God was staking a reputation claim, right? He had made promises 400 plus years earlier and been largely silent for 400 years. Moses appears having claimed to talk about God. God gave him a mission. He, they were setting him free. God was rescuing him. He was going to do all sorts of wonders. And they were watching it transpire before their eyes. He was showing the Israelites, too, that there's nothing impossible for God. That there's no power greater than God. That there's nothing that God cannot do. And another thing he was showing them is, God's not kind to sin, right? There's a lot of parallel between these plagues of Egypt and if you read through Revelation, fair? Eventually, God says enough. Even to a world that's hardened their heart against him, like Pharaoh's hardened their heart, right? His heart to God. To a world that's hardened their hearts against God and God keeps sending prophets, right? And now pastors all over the place. There's like five churches on this corner, right? He, he keeps sending the word out, the truth out into this world, and yet our world has largely hardened its heart against the Lord. Eventually, God will say enough once again. Eventually, God will rescue his people once more. Eventually, the time will come for the end, and he will punish mankind once again. He's long-suffering, we know that from Scripture, but he's also just. And it's not just to allow sin to go unpunished, not without a Savior. So we cling to Jesus in the meantime, but there's a lot of parallel here as we go there. I got a question here. What does it mean when God hardened Pharaoh's heart? What is the timeline between the first and the tenth plague? Um, Okay, 
probably just have time to address the first one, and then I'll get to the next one next week. When God hardened Pharaoh's heart, um, I think one of the, the, the difficulties of strict Scripture is to receive it as it's been revealed, right? Um, yeah, I've shared this before, and I'll share it again, that sometimes God uh, holds the unelect as expendable for the sake of the elect. He just does. There's multiple examples of it in Scripture that for the sake of his kids, he will do anything for those kids. Now, the unelect are rebellious against God. They hate God. They've chosen a life apart from God. They deserve in every way to be punished, just like we do, except that we have Jesus, so we're not, right? We're forgiven. So he's always just in punishing the evil from this earth, always, okay? But for the sake of his people, God will do anything. And he will protect them, and he will guide them, and he will lead them. And in this case, he had purpose in hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I don't think you can dismiss it saying Pharaoh hardened his own heart, although that was clear, clearly what he was doing a lot of the time. But sometimes God just pressed that extra button, right? Anybody know anybody who's really prideful? And it doesn't take much to kind of egg him on, okay? Think of Pharaoh, okay? Huge pride. Didn't take much to egg him on, Right? But he kept egging him on so that he could show, I don't know, a great amount of his power to the people of Israel and to the people of the world. He did that so his name would be glorified. He did it to help the people of Israel get out of the land of Egypt, but also to take over the land of Canaan. He did it to separate his people and say, these are my people and they got a powerful God, so watch out for them, right? Sometimes God will allow the unelect to be, I don't know, hardened so that his works, so that his grace could be more manifest. Think about Jesus. I mean, wasn't there some hardening of the hearts of the Pharisees, right? Especially when it came to decide to kill Jesus. I mean, that's not usually something we talk about in pastoral circles, but the Pharisees, pastors, right? The, the priests, pastors of those days, right? Somehow he convinced them that up was down and down was up and that it was better to kill somebody as a church policy. How do you get there if there's not some hardening of hearts going on? Also that Jesus might die for our sins and thus rescue the world. Over and over in Scripture, you just see that happening so that God's works can be furthered. So I guess that's the, the short answer to that. But it's not an easy truth. Because we think, well, that's not fair. Well, it is fair in the sense that evil deserves always to be punished. What's not fair is us receiving grace and mercy from our God. And yet God takes that unfairness and he says, I'm going to count it as mercy and I'm going to count it as grace and I'm going to count it as a reconciliation of our relationship, a forgiveness of your sins when my son died for you. That was not fair. Satan's saying, you're not playing fair. You can't let him die and do all that. You can't save all these people in one fatal swoop. You can't do it. But God says, I'm going to save my kids. And so it just takes a different way of looking at Scripture, but it's true and it's right and it's just and God is still good and right and just. But as you read through, sometimes it's hard to decipher that truth, to see what God is doing because we forget the bigger picture. I, I'm going to end there tonight, um, and we'll go into some of this other stuff next week. Let me pray. God, we love you so much. And I guess tonight, what I, I want to do is I want to thank you for, for the lengths that you've gone through in this history of ours 
and in our lives to remind us that you're still there for us and that you are true to your promises and that you love us and that there's nothing you won't do for us. But I think we forget that as we go through life because life gets difficult and as the Israelites experienced, life was difficult as well. But, but your promise is I work all things for the good of those who love me. And I will keep pursuing you with my love and I will keep reminding you of my truth and I will keep sharing grace and mercy with you as you walk through this life because I want you to be with me forever in heaven. Thank you for loving us more than we can comprehend. Thank you for loving us more than we love you. And thank you for pursuing us, Lord, so that we can spend our eternity with you. Father, thank you for being who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name tonight and all God's people said, amen. Go with this blessing. May our Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious always unto you. And may he look upon you now with his favor and grant you forever his peace. Guys, once again, go in that peace tonight and serve your Lord always with joy. And all God's people said, amen. Please rise for our final song.